Have you ever wondered what it's like to kill a man? Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to Sinister Souls, Episode 6, The Vampire Rapist. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. It helps us fight the algorithms. You can find us all over social media and email us and let us know what you think or send us some uh, suggestions on topics you'd like covered at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. This is the story of the vampire rapist. In the shadowed confines of a tractor trailer hurtling down the lonely road, the radio crackled with the eerie allure of cryptique, a spectral symphony for the macabre enthusiasts. The tales of the unknown held a certain fascination, like a forbidden whisper in the darkest corners of the mind. It was in this murky atmosphere that the world outside unfurled its own grim narrative. As the highway stretched endlessly before him, the driver's eyes caught a glimpse of the inexplicable. There, on the roadside, a figure crawled like a forsaken ghost, a specter left to languish in the relentless march of passing vehicles. A chill crawled up his spine as he bore witness to the coldness and callousness of the world. In an instant, his heavy foot slammed the brakes, rubber grinding against the asphalt in a discordant symphony of urgency but the shocking truth revealed itself as he approached the pitiful soul. She crawled in agony, bound by the cruel manacles of handcuffs. Her frail form, shrouded only in dirt and despair, clung desperately to the fraying threads of life. The scene that unfolded was otherworldly, a surreal nightmare etched into the annals of his memory, begging for salvation, eyes filled with unspeakable horror, she whispered desperate pleas, her voice a fragile thread connecting her to this world. Don't take me back to that house, she implored, her words a tremor in the air. She spoke of a man, a monster, who had violated her repeatedly, a fiend who had drained her of half her very life essence. This was the grim tale of the vampire rapist, a shadow born into privilege in the quiet heart of Clarksburg, West Virginia. John Crutchley, a child shunned by friendship and drawn to the solitude of basement workshops, found solace in the hum of electronic wonders. His fingers danced on circuitry and solder, a siren's call to the forbidden arts. In the dim light of his youth, he reaped the rewards of his affinity for technology, mending radios and stereo systems before he'd even cast aside his high school robes. His path led him through the hollowed halls of academia, graduating with a bachelor's degree in physics from Defiance College in Ohio in 1970. He climbed further, ascending the academic ladder to acquire a master's degree in engineering administration from George Washington University. It was in this ascent that he first donned the cloak of matrimony, marrying his first wife in 1969. Yet beneath the veneer of academic achievements and societal normalcy, a sinister darkness lurked. The tale of John Crutchley would become a haunting melody, weaving the threads of cruelty and obsession into the fabric of his existence. 
Amidst the tangled threads of his life, Crutchley's first marriage crumbled. It seems strained beyond repair by the time he donned the graduation cap. The ink had all but dried on that chapter of his existence as he sought refuge in the quiet city of Kokomo, Indiana. There, amidst the bustle of Delco Electronics Corporation, he would attempt to forge a new identity. His journey into the enigmatic world of electronics had led him through the gates of General Motors' Central Foundry Division in Defiance, Ohio. In those hollowed halls, he held the responsibility of overseeing the installation of a novel plant security system, a role that hinted at a future twisted by the threads of his obsession. But the call for change whispered to him, and he answered it. Seeking a fresh start, Crutchley submitted an application for a transfer to Delco Electronics in Kokomo, a city where the very systems he admired were conceived and crafted. For several years, he wore the mantle of an electrical systems engineer, weaving his expertise into the threads of technological advancement. Yet, shadows clung to his footsteps. An investigation by the relentless eyes of plant security unveiled discrepancies, materials that vanished into the ether. A sinister pall hung over his tenure in Kokomo, prompting a departure that left unanswered questions in its wake. His relentless journey continued as he migrated to Fairfax County, Virginia during the mid-1970s, exchanging one chapter for another. Here he embarked on a new marriage, casting himself as a man of rebirth. Crutchley ventured into the bustling realm of high-tech firms in the Washington, D.C. area, each a stepping stone on his path to an elusive destination. It was a time when darkness pooled in the shadows, and the hushed whispers of suburban streets masked unsettling truths. In the vicinity of the nation's capital, teenage girls vanished into the void, their disappearances casting a sinister shadow over the tranquil neighborhood. And then, a chilling chapter unfolded. It was 1977. The haunting tale of Deborah Fitzjohn, a 25-year-old secretary from Fairfax, Virginia, etched itself into the annals of despair. She vanished from existence, leaving behind only questions and echoes. John Crutchley stood at the center of this investigation, for he had been her paramour, and she was last glimpsed in the eerie confines of the very trailer park where he had carved out his residence. The eyes of scrutiny, ever watchful, fell upon him as he navigated the labyrinthine corridors of her disappearance. The grim specter of suspicion clung to John Crutchley as he found himself repeatedly summoned for questioning in connection to Deborah Fitzjohn's haunting disappearance. Yet the inscrutable veil of darkness obscured any concrete evidence, and the truth remained maddeningly elusive. Even when a hunter stumbled upon the skeletal remains of an unfortunate young woman in October of the following year, justice continued to evade the grasp of those who sought it. In the annals of crime, Crutchley's name would forever be etched as the Vampire Rapist, a chilling epithet that spoke volumes of his malevolent deeds. According to the keen insights of FBI profiler Robert Ressler, the man bore the sinister hallmark of a serial killer predator lurking in the shadows. And though the courts would convict him of only a solitary act, a non-fatal kidnapping and sexual assault, the darkness that swirled within him was far more profound. Robert Ressler, a name synonymous with the dark arts of criminal profiling, was a mysterious figure in the world of law enforcement. 
while the series Mindhunter cast him in the shadow of his more renowned counterpart, John Douglas, it was Ressler who pioneered the techniques and methodologies that would come to define the art of criminal investigation. We'll be right back after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. In the somber days of late November 1985, the Florida landscape bore witness to another chapter in this harrowing tale. Along the desolate roads of Malabar, Brevard County, an unimaginable sight emerged. A teenage girl, her naked form shackled at both feet and ankles, clawing her way along the roadside. Fate conspired to bring forth a compassionate soul, a motorist who halted in the face of such grotesque despair. She was only 19, her fragile innocence stripped away, replaced by the grim trappings of her ordeal. Filthy, exhausted, and reduced to a crawl, she had been forsaken by countless indifferent passers-by before a benevolent hand reached out. With trembling lips, she begged her savior not to return her to that house a nameless abyss that had devoured her soul. When pressed for specifics, she whispered a haunting reminder, a certain house etched in the annals of her tormentor's domain. The motorist, carrying the weight of this grim revelation, transported her to safety, and the call for justice reverberated through the airwaves. The hospital's grim diagnosis painted a picture of unspeakable horror. She had been drained of nearly half her life essence her veins a macabre reservoir for her tormentors' insatiable thirst. Ligature marks on her delicate neck bore silent witness to the twisted depths of her suffering, a testament to the malevolence of the vampire rapist who had held her captive in the abyss. In the chilling aftermath of that fateful encounter, the hitchhiker's world had unraveled with terrifying speed. A kind stranger had offered her a ride, a seemingly innocuous act of goodwill that veiled a malevolent intent. He promised to take her to her destination, but a sinister detour awaited her, concealed behind the facade of hospitality. Refusing his invitation into his abode had been her first act of defiance, a choice that would forever alter her destiny. With a sudden, brutal ferocity, the man seized her in the back seat, his hands closing around her throat, like the jaws of a sinister trap. Darkness enveloped her as the world faded away. She awoke, groggy and disoriented, her senses tethered to a grim reality. Her body was bound, rendered immobile upon a cold kitchen countertop. The room bore witness to the cruel intentions of her captor, for a video camera stood sentinel, lights casting a harsh glare upon the scene. The man, a grotesque embodiment of horror, subjected her to unspeakable violations, his insidious actions etched forever onto tape. In the depths of depravity, he revealed himself as a vampire, a creature of the night who drew sustenance from the lifeblood of others. Needles pierced her fragile flesh, extracting the crimson essence that coursed through her veins. Her tormentor drank deep the sinister act echoing with macabre whispers. The nightmare continued, each moment a descent into an abyss of agony. 
Handcuffed and imprisoned within the confines of a chilling bathtub, she awaited her captor's return, her helplessness a cruel testament to the horrors that unfolded. Morning's pale light brought no respite. The man returned for another round of degradation, his thirst for both her body and blood insatiable. Before departing, he left her with a grim promise, handcuffed and vulnerable. He warned of his return and invoked the specter of his brother, a harbinger of death. Escape was a precarious hope, but hope is a fragile ember, and she clung to it. When the attackers finally departed, leaving her shackled in the bathroom, she seized the moment with desperate resolve. Through sheer determination, she pushed her battered body through a narrow window, clawing her way to freedom along the path of desperation. Doctors, confronted with the ghastly truth of her ordeal, spoke of the dire consequences that had awaited her had she not escaped that fateful morning. Death, a sinister ghost, had hovered just beyond her grasp, its shadow looming. The wheels of justice turned and a search warrant bore the weight of retribution. John Brennan Crutchley, whose family was absent on a Thanksgiving holiday, found himself ensnared by the inexorable pursuit of truth. In a painful twist, the videotape held the damning evidence of her torment, a testament to the horrors she endured. Yet, in a cruel irony, portions of it had been erased, robbing her of the vindication she so desperately deserved. Crutchley was arrested during the search, which took place at 2.30 a.m. Photographs of the house taken at the time of his first search showed, among other things, a stack of credit cards several inches thick. A second, later search did not turn up these credit cards, nor a collection of women's necklaces concealed in a closet which had been noted but not confiscated by the police during the first search. After being contacted by local authorities for his input, Ressler was convinced that Crutchley had almost certainly killed before, identified him as a serial killer of the organized type. Serial killers of the organized type tend to collect such mementos, generally used as props and sexual fantasies commemorating their murders. Many forensic psychologists believe that serial killers of the organized type are initially driven to kill as a result of a powerful and recurrent sexual fantasy with sadistic themes. Many also believe that most of the organized serial killers may have had, not murder, but rather violent sadistic rape and fulfillment of their fantasy as their initial objective. However, having once killed and escaped arrest, many seem to analyze their realization of their sadistic fantasy and incorporate their successes and eliminate their mistakes. Thus, an addictive fantasy of sexual sadism becomes a blueprint for subsequent actions. Ressler believed that from the degree of organization of, quote, rehearsedness, evident at the time of arrest, that one can gain insight into the degree of successful practice of their crimes. The sinister puzzle of John Brennan Crutchley's life unraveled further, revealing a tapestry of darkness and depravity that had long remained hidden from the world's gaze. A harrowing account of his victim hinted at a history marked by sadistic sexual acts, bondage, and the extraction of blood from unwilling victims. It was a twisted tableau of violence, where the line between consent and coercion blurred into obscurity. 
Crutchley's calculated abduction and the precision with which he incapacitated his victim spoke of a chilling familiarity with such heinous acts. It was as though he had owned his malevolent craft, either through a relentless pursuit of victims or by harboring a sinister inclination that had long festered within. The ligature he employed to choke his victim into unconsciousness bore the hallmark of a practiced hand, hinting at either a sordid history or meticulous premeditation. In the videotape, that grotesque testament to his deeds served as a damning indictment. It suggested that these horrors had played out many times before, and that his sexual proclivities had veered into the realm of sadistic bondage. The thrill of recording these nightmarish acts amplified his perverse gratification, further cementing his descent into darkness. In the eyes of the astute profiler Robert K. Russler, Crutchley began to take shape as a figure aligned with the sinister archetype of a serial killer. The grim statistics surrounding Brevard County, where four female bodies had been discovered within the previous year, whispered of unsolved mysteries and sinister connections. Pennsylvania, too, bore witness to the shadowy specter of missing women and unexplained deaths during his time there. Find out more after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. The possession of multiple women's IDs in the concealed trove of various women's necklaces, ostensibly belonging to his wife, held a cryptic significance. These items, kept separately from the rest of his life, spoke of a hidden obsession, a collection of trophies, mementos, or dark souvenirs. Whether they symbolized conquests, kills, or haunting memories of twisted encounters remained shrouded in chilling ambiguity. In the realm of the organized serial killer, where methodical planning and a semblance of control reigned, Crutchley fit the profile with eerie precision. His hidden world was a labyrinth of depravity, where his darkest desires were enacted, recorded, and preserved as a grotesque legacy of malevolence. The sinister web surrounding John Crutchley continued to entangle the realms of suspicion and depravity. While no concrete evidence could firmly link him to the deaths that had plagued Brevard County, the specter of his involvement lingered like a ghost in the shadows. Among the many mysteries that circled Crutchley, one that persisted was his potential connection to the disappearance of Deborah Fitzjohn in 1977. The secretary from Fairfax, Virginia had crossed paths with him in his mobile home, and he was identified as the last person to have seen her alive. Yet despite these ominous circumstances, a direct link between Crutchley and her disappearance remained elusive. As investigators delved deeper into the abyss of Crutchley's life, they unearthed a trove of dark secrets. His penchant for extreme sexual experimentation had been meticulously documented, a sinister journal of debauchery that included encounters involving his wife. The boundaries of consent blurred, where willing participants in bondage and dominance had found themselves teetering on the precipice of violence. Some partners recounted a descent into darkness, where initially consensual acts took a malevolent turn. Crutchley's disregard for safe words served as a haunting reminder of the darkness that lurked beneath the surface of his desires. 
A disturbing discovery during the second search in the Brevard County case further unraveled the enigma of Crutchley's sexual exploits. A stack of 72 3x5 cards lay in his possession, each card bearing the names of women and detailed descriptions of their sexual performances. It was a macabre catalog of his conquests, a chilling testament to the depths of his obsession. Though the region bore witness to other disappearances, a definitive link to Crutchley remained elusive. However, the inescapable truth was that he held an intimate familiarity with the area, a knowledge born of sinister intent. The mysteries that swirled around him painted a portrait of a man who had navigated the boundaries between darkness and depravity with a chilling precision that left the world shuddering in its wake. This dark tapestry of John Crutchley's life extended its tendrils to regions far beyond the confines of Brevard County, Florida. Pennsylvania, too, bore witness to a haunting pattern of missing women and the grim discovery of deceased females in remote corners. The echoes of these unsolved mysteries cast a pall over his past, hinting at a sinister connection that defied explanation. In the annals of Wheaton, Maryland, around 1975, the inexplicable daytime disappearance of two young teenage girls baffled investigators. Crutchley's involvement loomed, an unsettling hypothesis that remained shrouded in ambiguity. The haunting echoes of a rape murder in nearby Aspen Hill, Maryland, during that time, further fueled suspicions of a malevolent presence. His wife's familial ties to Maryland added a cryptic layer to this enigma. The intricate dance of darkness extended to Crutchley's wife, a partner entwined in his web of sexual escapades. Testimonies from his first wife painted a chilling portrait of their numerous encounters, often steeped in sadistic undertones. Despite his unassuming appearance, Crutchley wielded a controlling influence over those who crossed his path, manipulating the threads of their lives. At the time of his guilty plea for rape and kidnapping, a startling revelation emerged. Rather than facing additional charges related to drug possession and grievous bodily harm, Crutchley's wife seemed determined to downplay the affair, framing it as a mere dalliance that had spiraled out of control. She described the event as a, quote, gentle rape devoid of any overt brutality, end quote. A chilling attempt to normalize the horrors that had transpired. In the aftermath of the trial, her nonchalant response to reporters further shocked the public. She appeared to view her husband, quote, as a kinky sort of guy, end quote casting aside the gravity of his actions with alarming ease. It was a disturbing testament to the depth of their shared darkness, a partnership built on the foundations of their shared malevolence. Crutchley's initial defense, which portrayed the hitchhiker as a willing participant in what he called kinky sex, crumbled under scrutiny. The veil of Manson-esque associations dissolved, revealing the true horrors that had transpired, the echoes of his actions reached far beyond the confines of Brevard County, casting a long and sinister shadow over the lives of those he touched. The legal journey of John Crutchley took a series of unsettling twists and turns, exposing the complex and often baffling nature of the justice system. The survivor's initial reluctance to press charges, despite passing a lie detector test and medical tests confirming the presence of semen, bore testament to the emotional turmoil that enveloped her. 
Her eventual decision to press charges came about through the persuasion of a rape counselor who illuminated the responsibility she bore to protect other potential victims from suffering a similar fate. In June 1986, Crutchley entered a guilty plea to the charges of kidnapping and rape, a stark bargain that had led prosecutors to drop the grievous bodily harm charge related to the extraction of the victim's blood and drug possession. During the sentencing phase, the macabre issue of blood drinking came to the forefront. Crutchley claimed that he had been introduced to this dark ritual by a nurse in 1970 as part of a twisted sexual practice. He contended that it should not weigh in his sentencing because, in this instance, he had not consumed the blood. He asserted that it had coagulated before he could ingest it, becoming an impenetrable barrier. Throughout his legal ordeal, Crutchley's wife remained a mysterious figure, declining to take the stand but publicly asserting her husband's innocence. The sentencing hearing took a surprising turn with testimony from Robert Ressler who argued for a punishment beyond the state's guidelines. The judge, influenced by wrestlers' insights, delivered a verdict that exceeded expectations, a sentence of 25 years to life in prison, with an additional 50 years of parole. However, the unsettling story did not end there. Wrestlers' prediction that Crutchley might be released as early as 1998 proved eerily prophetic. In reality, Crutchley was granted freedom two years earlier than anticipated. On August 8, 1996, after serving 11 years of his sentence, he emerged from the shadows of Union Correctional Institution in Rayford, Florida, under the auspices of good behavior, leaving a legacy of dread and unanswered questions in his wake. The complex and troubling saga of John Crutchley took yet another twist as officials in various locations grappled with his presence, no community seemed willing to bear the burden of his proximity, and he became a pariah in the eyes of many. After being shunned by Bridgeport, West Virginia, where his mother resided, and facing rejection in Malabar and Melbourne, Florida, he was eventually transferred to the Orlando Probation and Restitution Center. This halfway house was to serve as a place for counseling and restitution while he remained under the weight of a 50-year parole sentence. However, his tentative steps towards freedom were short-lived. Less than a day after his transfer, Crutchley found himself arrested once more, this time for violating his parole. The reason was his positive test for marijuana, a substance he initially denied using. He claimed that fellow inmates had blown smoke in his face, but prosecutors presented evidence to the contrary. Crutchley had confessed to a corrections inspector that he had smoked marijuana because he was nervous about his impending release and was aware of the calming effects of the drug. This parole violation proved to be the tipping point. On July 31, 1997, under the Three Strikes Law, Crutchley was sentenced to life in prison. The aftermath after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. This marked Crutchley's third conviction, with the first two stemming from the kidnapping and rape of the Brevard County team. 
In the midst of these legal proceedings, the specter of unsolved slayings haunted the landscape. Naval investigators began to explore the possibility of a link between Crutchley and the cold cases of two local Navy women. Crutchley, already a suspect in at least six Florida killings, had once had access to the Norfolk Naval Air Station during the time when the two Navy women met their tragic ends over a decade before. The webs of darkness that clung to his life continued to unravel, revealing a disturbing trail of violence and bloodshed. The unsettling web surrounding John Crutchley continued to tighten as investigators delved into the possibility of his involvement in unsolved cases, particularly those two linked to the Navy. Wayne Bailey, the special agent in charge of the local NCIS office, confirmed that information had surfaced prompting a preliminary exploration of Crutchley as a potential suspect. However, the details surrounding this information remained shrouded in secrecy, leaving the public with more questions than answers. Despite the suspicions that swirled around him, Florida prosecutors had previously attempted to bring murder charges against Crutchley without success. In 1989, his former lawyer revealed that Crutchley had been prepared to confess to at least three murders and lead authorities to the burial sites. However, negotiations between Crutchley and prosecutors ultimately collapsed, leaving the dark mysteries unsolved. During a period from 1979 to 1983, Crutchley had been employed by a Washington-based defense contractor affording him access to the Norfolk Naval Air Station. It was during this time that two young Navy women met grim fates. Pamela Ann Kimbrew, a 23-year-old Navy messenger, vanished from the base on March 25, 1982. Her lifeless body was later discovered in her car, submerged at the end of a seaplane ramp. Her assailant had bound her arms with clothesline and attempted to strangle her. Left behind were a green ski mask and fingerprints that did not belong to the victim or her boyfriend. Carol Ann Molnar, 21-year-old Navy clerk, disappeared on February 6, 1983, further deepening the shadow of suspicion. These cases remained unsolved, their chilling details etched into the annals of the unknown. The mysteries of John Crutchley continued to unfold as the specter of his involvement in these haunting mysteries beckoned investigators to pierce the darkness that shrouded his past. But the disturbing chapter of John Crutchley's life came to a tragic and enigmatic end when guards at the Hardy Correctional Institute in Central Florida discovered him in his cell with a plastic bag over his head. Despite efforts by medical professionals, he could not be revived, and he succumbed to asphyxiation, as confirmed by state corrections officials. In subsequent reports around August 1, 2003, the Florida Department of Corrections declared that Crutchley had died as a result of autoerotic asphyxiation, a practice involving self-strangulation during sexual activity. This revelation added another layer of darkness to his already unsettling story. During his arrest, it had come to light that Crutchley was in possession of a significant amount of highly classified information related to naval weaponry and communications. This classified information raised concerns not only within the FBI, but also among other unnamed federal agencies, which had considered the possibility of opening an espionage case against him. 
Crutchley's employer, the Harris Corporation, held deep ties to NASA's research and launch facilities at Cape Canaveral, as well as to various naval contractors and subcontractors. This web of connections and the nature of the classified information he possessed only deepened the mystery surrounding his actions. The circumstances surrounding Crutchley's life and death are fraught with unanswered questions and disturbing revelations. With his passing, intentional or unintentional, many details of his crimes and potential motivations may remain forever concealed. While his demise may bring a sense of closure to some, it is a chilling reminder of the darkness that can lurk beneath the surface, leaving a trail of uncertainty and dread in its wake. That's all we've got for you on The Vampire Rapist. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please like, subscribe, and follow. That's it. That's all we ask. And what do we always say? Don't sleep. Cryptique. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. <laughs>